I think I'm gonna do things that will be the first of in my lineage. I just knew, but what that gave room to in my community is, oh, Candice thinks she's too nice. You think you're too special. And in my head, I was like, but I am. C2IA Talks, the podcast. Right, check, one, two, one, two. Hello. Good morning, guys. Give me some energy, give me some vibes. Welcome. Um, wow, this is actually my first live um, since the pandemic, so I'm excited. But I'm also, I woke up this morning quite nervous because I haven't spoke to people in IRL, this many people in the room in quite a long time. Um, but welcome, if this is your first TTYA Talks. Um, my name's Irene, um, and I started this platform as a way to connect and inspire women who are kind of pioneering in the creative industries and kind of just give you the knowledge and the skills and the tools that you need to be able to enter into the industry because sometimes I feel like with social media we only really see the highlights and not the and not the roadmap. Um, it is about pioneering women who have really pushed the boundaries out and are giving you actual useful tips and tools. So yeah I'm gonna get in a little bit um, into our guest today. We have um, Candice. Um, she's an author, journalist and TV presenter who started utilising the internet in 2015 to tell her own motherhood stories. Her debut book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, toot toot beep beep, um, published in May 2020, <laughs> made the Sunday Times bestseller and she's someone that I love, I cherish. Um, we first connected on, on, on Instagram, um, on Instagram, so social media has its uses, guys. Um, but I'm excited to welcome you today. You're someone that has not only inspired me by your real talk and your commitment to kind of always make sure that your voice is heard. Um, but from a TTYA standpoint, you resonate everything that we stand for and we champion. So I'm excited to get into all things with you here today. So yes, give it up for Candice, guys. Thank you. <laughs> so good morning. <laughs> We've just been in the corner there, gisting. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to TTY Talks, the podcast live. How are you today, Candice? I am knackered, man. <laughs> I am so tired. So I got back from New York Monday night at like 2 a.m. because the flight was delayed by three hours and we were already on the plane. And it was like just this whistle-stop tour in New York where I was like going to bed for three hours a night like I'm not a mum. <laughs> and now I'm home. I just can barely keep my eyes open. <laughs> but, but I'm in a positive place, mm. as tired as I am. This is the best I've ever felt about myself and my life. Um, and I think that it shows, basically. We're, we're going to unpack it, sis. <laughs> we're going to unpack it. <laughs> but before we jump to Z, let's start at A. Um, I kind of want to start at the beginning. So tell us where you grew up. Tell oh us God. about young Candice. Um, and give us a little bit about your roots and culture. We want to hear it all. Uh, young Candice grew up in Brixton. Hey, <laughs> toot toot, beat beat. Um, Me too. <laughs> grew up in Brixton and I was primarily raised by my maternal granddad. So shortly before I was born, he was mugged and he was left blind in one eye. And back then you were labeled as deemed unfit for work. Mm -hmm. So he became a house husband. And my nan went out to pay the mortgage. And the mortgage back then was like £5 a week. I'm not even lying. Man. Because I think th they've got a free-bed house um, on Brixton Hill. They pay 17k. So it was literally... I saw the mortgage slips. It was literally £5 a week. Um, but she went to work. And my mum went back to work. And my granddad raised me, which I think set the standard for men and how different households can be. Mm. Because I don't know how to bus pop. 
I will always burn the rice. When my husband goes away, the delivery room bill is like this. I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't feel shame about it because I was raised around a man who was deemed a feminine, done the ironing, took me to school, bathed me. And what that did is, in my mind, I was like, raw, women make money, you know? <laughs> like, I see my nan leave at 4.30 and come back at 1.30 and then do a next job. I was like, oh, you go out and you do the deals. That's how I saw it in my brain, which I think was really, really helpful. And I loved coming up in South London. I will say this, though, from a very young age, I was like, raw. Um, I feel like I've been born into the wrong family. It's a hard thing to describe, mm -hmm. but you know when you know your essence is beyond the space you're in? I was like, I'm actually not going to be here very long in, in this space, and I think I'm going to do things that will be the first of in my lineage. I just knew, but what that gave room to in my community is, oh, Candice thinks she's too nice. Mm. She thinks she knows it all. You think you're too special. And in my head, I was like, but I am. And I don't know how to communicate that with you because I'm five, mm. but I know, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm acting this way because I just don't think our destinies are aligned. And I will say, I've got to put respect on his name. My dad died when I was 20. My dad was always like, I don't know what it is about you, but you come like gold dust. He was like, I just want to rub up on you because I feel like you're going somewhere I can't even imagine. And I think he'll be blown away to see where I am today. So... I will say young candies had very firm male foundations. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you know, um, I grew up in Brixton, and it's so funny because I've just only moved away. Last, this time last year, I moved away from Brixton. Born and raised, and it's completely changed. All gentrified now. Lots of cute cafes and stuffs. Um, but I think one thing that Brixton always has or has and will always have is its sense of community, one, and two, roots and culture. So no matter what, you're going to see your rasta selling incense by the station. No matter what, you know you can get your yam, your scotch bonnet, your plantain, planting. expressions. Your expressions. <laughs> everything's on your doorstep. <laughs> and moving away, it was tough for me because it was like almost like I was sourcing everything again from scratch. And I felt like a part of me yeah. was removed. And you've also moved away from Brixton. Yeah. How was it for you? Um, I'm not going to lie. It was, a, it was an easier decision because when we left London, I was pregnant with my son. And I hadn't even had the scan yet. I just knew it was a boy. Mm. I think you just know. And I'm very obsessed with, like, the weirdest things, um, specifically knife crime data. Like, I obsess over stuff like that. And I was like, rah, year on year, this ain't getting any better. Mm -hmm. And it's also showing that my son doesn't have to be gang affiliated. Mm -hmm. It's literally wrong place, wrong mm -hmm. time. Where can I go in this country where nothing's perfect, but how can I keep him in a protective bubble for as long as possible? And because, again, like I said, from a young age, I was like, this ain't always where I'm going to be. I didn't really feel sad. Mm. I was like, I've just outgrown mm. this space. It's always going to be here. I can always go there. And like you said, the roots and culture, like the man with the incense will always know me. Like, he don't care about my books or TV. <laughs> He's like, candy, it's that. And I'm like, right, that's always going to be there. But keeping my family safe was mm. like the first thing. I'm not going to lie to you yet. That move took a toll on my mentality. Because I we moved in on a Sunday, 4 p.m., ain't no shop open, Tesco closed, ain't no Morley's. I was like, <laughs> I ain't got nothing to feed the kids. Like, what is going on? It's a different world outside of London. Like, they value time more. They value their fresh air. They value, like, just walking their kids and their dog. And it was a major mind shift. Like, I've not he heard a siren for three years. I've not heard a siren. I've not... 
the one village we wanted to move in before and we couldn't afford it at the time, like maybe six months ago, there was a double stab in there. And I swear to this day, MK still talk about it. Because we just don't, mm. do you know what I mean? We're like, this is not a common occurrence. And I will say, being able to like be in the countryside, it's just MK though, but being around green space has been vital for my mental health. Mm. I couldn't imagine doing a lockdown and a pandemic with two small kids in the city. So there's been that. And also, it's allowed me to come into the city and just do vibes and excitement mm. and then go back to this quiet space mm -hmm. I call home. Because I feel like with the kind of lifestyle and attitude I have, if I lived in the city, I'd be like some coked up Paula Yates <laughs> type. Like, I'd just be on the lash every single night. No, I swear to God, yeah. I just think I'd be just doing the madness. And where I can't just come into the city and be with my friends drinking and rolling about, it's like, no, take your time. It's fine. So, um... Yeah. <laughs> Life, li lifestyle switch up, boy. <laughs> um, so I want to get into a little bit about career. Yeah. So you burst onto the scene doing up momfluenza. I learned that <laughs> word when I was doing my research. Momfluenza. I didn't even know it existed. Um, and I often get asked this a lot. Like, do you feel pressure? Do you feel there's a lot of pressure that comes with that title, influencer? When I started, yeah, and I'm always really open with people, when I came across influencing, it was called blogging when I came across mm. it, I was working at Penguin Random House in the marketing department, and I was spending my whole day on the phone to these mummy bloggers, being like, how much would it be for you to talk about this book? And when they were telling me the price, I was like, right. And I just, I just had my little notebook, I was making my notes. I was like, I'm in the wrong job. Because what do you mean you're charging two grand to just put this book on your blog? And then Instagram really started to grow. And what I clocked was there were no black influencers. Mm. So my jump was purely strategic. Mm. I saw a gap in the market. I didn't really care about these women, didn't want to befriend them. I just wanted to get my bread up. But it had to be like, it was a business plan. And I always tell people that because I think some people... Um, you hear these stories and it's like, oh, I just got lucky. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I just found my community. Lie to my tell. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, they are lying. <laughs> They're lying. They're sitting down trying to work out what time to post and what event to be at. It's a plan. It's a strategy. Bruv, it's a business. And I weren't going to leave my, everyone says this, my very good job in publishing to just be like, oh, let me just take a chance. I could see there was a gap in the market. But I'm a Pisces, so I did leave before I would encourage anyone to do because I left without savings mm. and I had a young child and my husband looked at me like, when I say that was the cross to bear in our relationship for many years, because mm. my husband's like, now we're back on the breadline and it's your fault because you want to fuck with YouTube. So what are we going <laughs> to and I was just like, baby, it's going to work out. I promise, I promise. You've got to see the vision. You've got to see the vision. <laughs> Honestly, for years, he was just like, Ron, now we're living on £50 a month because you, you had a vision. Um, and I'm like, the vision took four years to pay off, you know. Uh, four years. Imagine going four years and not getting a check. I got my first check four years later. I worked with a brand and I got £1,000 and no one couldn't tell me that wasn't a million. Mm. Not necessarily because of the money in hand, but it was like, no, nah, you made the right decision mm -hmm. and in the early days being an influencer specifically a black one in an all-white space the pressure was ah you 
uh, my therapy today is for issues back then. Because the reality is this was in a pre-BLM time. This was pre-George Floyd, where people were open about their racism or were open about going online and cussing you under some ungiven name and da-da-da-da-da. And what really made me um, switch up and be like, I'm not doing this no more, I think many people would know there was like a very popular white mummy blogger who got found out to be going on chat rooms under another name and she trolled me in a racist manner and I was like, oh, I'm not playing this game because what happened is the next day, it's front page news. Mm. It's on the sun. There's a picture of me in the sun. And my child mind is ringing me like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Guess what? I just go and I do my job. But me existing as a black woman mm. in a space they think is theirs has got everyone's knickers in a twist. Mm. And I'm not playing this game no more. And what hurt me at the time was I wasn't even able to verbalize my anger because I'm a black woman. And you're aggressive. I wasn't <laughs> able to defend myself. Mm. I didn't feel like I could jump online and be like, rah, da 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 da. I had to be him. Yeah. And I said, the kind of pain that I'm feeling, it won't, it won't catch me again. Mm. So now I don't feel pressure. I am what I am. And you can like it, you can leave. Also, though, I've earned my stripes in this industry, mm. so I don't feel no way. I don't feel no way to be like, I don't want to go to that party because I don't have to. Mm. I've done all the mingling and it really burnt me, so now we're here. But I understand now, especially younger women can come into this industry and you're just trying to take on everyone's opinions and every little comment and you you know and you hear people say oh but you'll live in the echo chamber as a black woman i deserve this echo chamber mm. i'm not trying to hop online and hear trolling or racist comments so i block and delete and i feel good about it my block i could have had a million followers you know but my block list stay like this like <laughs> my block list is ttya <laughs> honestly <laughs> i'm just like block 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 i don't have time for it i need to operate in a space of delusion because when i go out into this 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 Western world, you tell me all the time you don't like me mm. or how I'm aggressive or I shouldn't be achieving this or do. So in this space, and especially because I know how many black women follow me, I see it as a, a duty of care mm -hmm. to keep that space pure mm -hmm. and clean. You're not going to come here and find comments desecrating black women. It's just not a vibe. So now the pressures aren't there, but it's tough. And mm. I will say that um, you you learn through the fire with this industry. We did speak about that um, this morning because we were like, we, well, me and Kenny were saying that I think sometimes when you do see the highlights, people don't really see the pain and the struggle that's got you here. And but also it's like you appreciate the L's that you've taken because what those L's have taught you, you will never make those mistakes again. And I always say this, like God has a funny way when you're just about to elevate to the next level. He has a funny way of bringing things into your presence that you know that you need to eliminate because it shows you that you can't you can't get to the next level with all of this excess baggage. So I feel like for us, sometimes it's like, yes, you take the L, but sometimes it's better to focus on the lessons that you learn from that L rather than dwelling in the, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to me and this person went online and said this or I didn't make <laughs> this much money. But it's about the lesson. And I think it's really important um, to kind of stay on track and learn the lesson and incorporate that lesson to elevate you to the next level. One thing I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit more about as well is money, cash doiler. You know, we like the cash doilers. Yeah. <laughs> and I think just to touch a little bit about what you said about being in your first job and kind of seeing what people were kind of getting paid. Did that help you in setting your base level for knowing what your fees would be when you transitioned and went on to the other side? Because a lot of questions that people always ask me is how do I know what my rate should be? How do I know what to charge? How did you kind of come up with your pay structure and know what you should be charging? 
it was an absolute shit show to start <laughs> with. I was online seeing these things like charge this per follower. Da -da 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 -da. The reality is your followers are no indicator of how much you influence an industry or a culture. Facts. It just has nothing to do with it. Because how Kim, how Kylie has got more followers than Beyonce is beyond me. Mm. We know who influences the culture more. Mm. So it can't just be defined like that. And I will say this openly. The major key for me was getting a white manager. Getting someone who speaks money in that way whom they respect. Because as a black woman um, corresponding with these brands, they're never going to tell me the rate. And I don't know how to operate in this field and I don't have the legal understanding yet. So for me, one of the biggest blessings in my life has been uh, my management team who are like, nah, actually, you know that time when you got paid £300? That should have been 15 grand, considering that your face is still on a bus stop. And I'm like, wow, again, you take the L's, you learn the lesson. And now I would say, I don't feel no way for young, especially young black creators to come into my DMs and be like, what should I be charging? Because I understand that. And the little education that I have, I'm always trying to pay it forward. And also, I want to send them back to the brand with that knowledge. Because once you start talking the right money, they then go, well, she's speaking to someone, you know. There's no manager, but she's got intel. Because the reality is, I don't think people truly understand. I think I read last week, um, influencing by next year will be worth 46 billion worldwide with a b i don't think people with a capital b sis. i don't think people can Billions. actually understand how much money is in this industry and especially post pandemic when we all thought we were going to be jobless let's mm. be honest all that advertising money has been ripped from the streets who's looking at a billboard who's mm. even at all that money is being put into your phone but people are coming into this industry not understanding how big boy advertising works the reality is any company coming to me and saying we'll pay you 10 grand to post this picture they would have had to have paid Vogue a hundred thousand mm -hmm. and I'm not even lying between hiring people and getting the right like you're still paying me pittance and I know to the average though that 10 grand is a lot of money but the more you understand the market you can start to like understand the variables and be like no you're mugging me off still you know because mm -hmm. if we were doing this the old-fashioned way mm -hmm. this is how much you'd be out of pocket and like I said all this um, education I've just had to learn and pick up and really this is interesting. Not really run with influencers, but run with business people. Yeah. And there's a difference. Mm, mm, mm. Not every influencer is a business person. Mm. Most influencers, if, if Instagram pops down tomorrow, they're broke. Mm. They have got no connections. They've got no understanding. They've not developed their skill set mm -hmm. to be able to transfer themselves into something else. Me, I know how to bust case on Final Cut, you know. <laughs> Honestly, mm, I will get jiggy. I'm like, listen... <laughs> I'm not just going to sit here thinking that this brand are going to pay me this forever. There's always a hot new influencer. There's always a prettier face. There's always something else. So you've got to learn how to diversify and getting around certain, and I'll tell the truth, majority white field spaces mm -hmm. put me on game. Mm -hmm. I was like, right, that's how you get that money. That's how you build that brand. And, and that's what these people are charging. Chase, I feel like, <laughs> let me inhale. <laughs> let me exhale. <laughs> I'm receiving all of that blessing. Wow. I want to get into the book. Oh <laughs> I want to get into the book. I'm not your baby mother. First of all, title. Chai. Because <laughs> for me, it gave real unfiltered insight into what it means to be a black British mother and how the lack of awareness of the racial dimension of motherhood can be could lead to really serious, deadly consequences. Yeah. It was the first of its kind, sis. Mm. Tell us more about your inspiration behind it. 
and I now want to get into the technicalities of actually writing a book because I feel like we don't dis- we don't unpack that enough. So the over to you. So I've come from a publishing space, knowing that the dream was always to write books, and I don't mean to like. No, I do mean to piss on the industry. The reality is, with influencing, publishers now are, are giving people deals who are undeserving. Mm. These people are not writing their material. They just see someone with a million followers that is, of course, going to translate to sales, and they're like, oh, I'll give you my money. But what that what's happening there is it's diluting the true talent of writing. Mm. And I was spending many years being surrounded by white women who didn't even want to be writers, being like, you get a book deal, you get a book deal, you get... I am not your baby mother was my ninth proposal, my ninth book proposal. Babe, louder for the people at the back. Ninth, number nine. The previous eight, check it. It was no, it was always you're such a good writer. That's the first line, you know. But but your platform's not big enough yet. But we need you to go and grow your following. But we don't want to. We don't think this was always the kicker for me. We don't think that there is a majority black audience who will be willing to buy your books. I said, wow, okay. So it got to a point where I was just feeling so frustrated and w- the feedback as well kept being, why doesn't she write about motherhood? I was like, are you not kidding me? There are 100,000 titles. I can't bring nothing new to this situation. And it must have been God. I just felt really boxed into a corner. And I, I, I wrote, I'm not your baby mother. So vexed. I was like, you want to chat about motherhood, yeah? <laughs> Come we go then. Because everything I've read is not speaking to me directly. And I remember when I had Esme, anything to do with black motherhood i had to import from america and i had to i had to i had to think about motherhood from an african-american perspective not a black british one so i was i was oh i was just so vexed and then i was like and the titles i'm not your baby mother and my brothers were like rah you really want to do that yeah (laughs) i was like yeah they were like you know the kind of message i send in yeah i was like yeah (laughs) and then um uh still no one was buying it and so what was happening i was this close i think i was a day away from signing with unbound and they essentially help you self-publish that's how frustrated i was feeling then quercus who i ended up publishing called me and they were like do not sign that contract (laughs) because this is legit the most powerful thing we've ever read i was like that's calm yeah but here are my things now because i don't care anymore you don't get my book unless we keep that title and many people don't know about the publishing industry um Publishers get to choose the last title. Authors very rarely have a say in the title or the cover. Like you are signing over your creative rights, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that was me testing Quercus. I was like, are you really down to ride, though? Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to come to me and say, oh, we need to, you're not the people for me. Mm-hmm. And it's fine. We will self-publish and find my people. Luckily for them, because not luckily for me, luckily for them, they're like, you know what? We're going to take a risk. You could not make this up and you wouldn't want to, but I'm Not Your Baby Mother came out the same week George Floyd was murdered. Mm. And literally the rest is history. Because you could not, that is like a very sick, horrible marketer's dream. You could not align those things anymore. Like I'm a brand new author, all of a sudden thrust into the Sunday Times bestseller list and they can't print the book quick enough. But it's, that's off the back of a black man's murder. Let's not let's not ever forget that because people are like, oh, aren't you know that book did so well? I'm like, did you see the landscape? What is well to you? And I appreciate that might help my book's message go a bit further, but that's not the way I would have wanted it to go down. Whew, I feel like I'm in therapy. This is <laughs> mad. I want to unpack a little bit about the structure of writing because I get asked a lot about, oh, but how? How did you do it? How was it done? 
and I think with this platform, I think we al almost have a responsibility to keep it 100. So like, you say you wrote a book, but how long did that take? Where was your writing space? Like, you know, how did you devise your chapters? <laughs> like, I, I want to know the nitty gritty. Do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm very lazy and I'm very ghetto. And those two things have sent me very far. Because what the laziness does from a writing perspective is I'm not precious. So I, c I completed I'm Not Your Baby Mother in nine months. It was literally like giving birth to a child. And I wrote it in my very spider-filled little office at the time. Ooh. Um, and I just let the book go. And then, you know, the edits were coming back. And I was like, no, I didn't sign up for all of that. I was like, stop right there. I was like, you edit that to the best of your capability. And then you send it back to me when you think it's good to print. What we're not going to do is tussle. And also, I was noticing something in the edits. I remember the first editor was like, um, uh, she said something like, surely all Africans say this. I called up that publishing house so quick. I was like, drr, drr, hello, hello, hello. I said, we have a very big problem. Mm. I said, I understand you've not published work like this before, but what you're now going to go and need to do is give a black woman some money to edit my material. Because mm. what I don't want to be doing in this moment is educating the black woman that's trying to, the white woman that's trying to edit my work. So they fired her. I, and I went on Twitter and she was like a 65-year-old white woman who played classical violin. I was like, how on earth? Did you think she was going to edit? I'm not your baby mother. Let's start there. Like There was always going to be a bit of friction. So once we got her out of the way and we got a black editor on it, I was just like, I trust you because I know you know my culture and what I'm trying to say. And the rest was history in that respect. I'm now on book number three, and I am just about to be three months overdue with the deadline, but Jesus will do it, won't he? <laughs> <laughs> Amen. He will do it. He will always get it done. And I will say this, like... I'm, I don't have the, and I don't want to say pleasure, I don't have the pleasure of just being a writer. Mm. There are people that can sit down at their desk from nine to six and they just write and have a coffee and go for an inspirational walk. I'm doing so many other things. I've got these two kids, I'm doing the influencing, then I've got to be on TV, then I've got, like there's all these, so I'm, I'm just ghetto, like I write most of my books on my phone. Mm. Then I send it to my laptop and then I'm, I'm always just trying to make it work and I think, and I think that that's okay. I think the days of idolizing this very picturesque writer and that's all they do. Let me tell you straight, writers don't make no money. You can be artistic all you want, okay, and you can be broke, that's fine. That's the choice you made. <laughs> no facts, because pe like, like don't, don't get disillusioned, these rose-tinted spectacles. Them ones that need to do the coffee break, they can barely afford the coffee, bro. My idea of what a writer used to be was very much carry sex in the sea. This is it! You know? Like, Dear diary, dot, 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 dot. I'm like, the world... And then Manolo's <laughs> just happened to just be in the closet. Like, how, <laughs> sis? How? How? <laughs> Alaya, how? This is what I mean. Where I'm did like, the funds come from, I'm like, sis? I know they're not paying you that, especially in this market. And so, like, literally, I know, you know, well, I'm, I'm not even going to say her name. Unless you wrote Harry Potter, you're not balling like that. Unless your book becomes a film, that's a very popular way now to make some returning coin. You're not balling like that. So most writers now have another job. And so that means you just have to respect that you, you have to... You have to fake the time to write. I really have to carve it out. So that's my writing process. It's very higgy hugger. I wouldn't promote it to no one. <laughs> Do you know what? It works for you, sis. And right now, you've got Sunday Times bestselling <laughs> just under your belt. So whatever works, sis, whatever works. Um, 
I would love to hear from you and for any writers that we might have in the room. What are maybe three tips that you might give anyone who's kind of thinking of starting to write a book? Uh, you are your first and most important audience. This is, this is egotistical, but you have to be. I don't care what no one thinks about my work. I have never read a review, and I hate when the reviews find me like someone DMs me and I happen to be in the DMs. I don't care because the thing is, if I cared, I'd never write. It's very, it can paralyze you just hearing a bad comment or someone being like, I you need to understand you're not for everyone. It's just the way of the world. Mm. So you have to write to make yourself happy or sad or whatever the flow is. First and foremost, that's always the way to go. Number two, finding an editor you connect with is everything. Now, let me backtrack. Publishing is very old-fashioned, and it has these iron gates around it. And trying to approach that scene without an agent is incredibly difficult. And I would say finding the right agent. I went through agents like tampons, bro. I was like, no, not you, not you, not you, not you. Because finding an agent who is going to stand up for you come hell or high water is really, really important. Um, and beyond that, yeah, just enjoy the ride. This is not... If you've really got a book sitting in your heart and you've taken the time to write that out, this is not something that people would choose to do. This is not a passion or a, a road that people would choose to follow. So it's like you genuinely have to enjoy it. And more time now, I say no to a lot of things because as a black woman, I've reached a point in my life where I can put enjoyment first. Mm. And that actually is the goal. That's the key. I am the minister of honestly, enjoyment. Honestly. <laughs> it's my life goal. Like, it's not like, I no longer have to choose this job because I don't know how I'm topping up the gas meter. Mm. I no longer have to choose this job because I feel like I need to be in the right place. I can say yes or no based on enjoyment. And if you are not writing from a place of enjoyment, you're always going to be sad. Mm. Because I'll be true with you, um, the likelihood of you getting what you want 100% of the time is not going to happen. So how are you going to fill yourself up mm. so that when them L's and them no's come, it's not throwing you off. They're going to come. Mm. People are going to tell you no 30 times you know what i mean so you have to know that this is something you that makes you happy and that you're committed to oh jeez do you know what i always say is that your tank needs to overflow you you need to overflow your tank before anyone else can because if you're running on empty then your 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 your, your emergency light is always going to be on and hearing everything that you've just spoke about just literally just gives me gives me gives me gives me chills try sister 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 <laughs> let's unpack because the part that really stood out to me was your discussion around grief and i feel like in our communities we don't speak about it enough um and and growing up in brixton has its pros and its cons um i think for me i learned to deal with death from a very young age which now as an adult i find can be quite dangerous because i'm almost desensitized you hear about people dying all the time you hear about knife crime you hear about you just almost desensitized away from it now you're even watching people dying on the internet on your phone like it's nothing like it's a movie in my book sister sister it would have been the grief and the family chapter that would have got me sued the quickest mm. so many people come back to me and they're like with the family chapter how did you decide on one line i didn't my solicitor did mm. my solicitor was like listen i can print the one hundred thousand words you've written mm -hmm. but you may be homeless because <laughs> People are going to be in their feelings. And so the grief chapter had to allow me to get some things off my chest while protect my children's assets, which mm. is a very difficult line to walk. Mm. But also I wanted to express how um, 
how backwards and traumatic dealing with death can be in the black community. I've never seen nothing as EastEnders like as that moment. It's just so messy. Like, no one can put anyone else first when these things are happening. Then there's all the secrets that come with death in our community. And I'm like, you lot are mad. Like, <laughs> and now we can't even wake up the man to ask him no questions. Yeah. So w w what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for me, it was a very, it's, an, it's still a very sensitive issue. I'm my, d I'm my dad's only child. And so there was no other sibling to turn to and be like, right, that was mad in it. Mm. Or I didn't just imagine that. Like, <laughs> it was just me dealing with this grief and, and the messiness that he left behind. Mm. And what I wanted to communicate in that chapter is that it's on us to leave things as tidy as possible mm. if you say you love these people. Mm. And the pandemic taught us death can come at any moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, j you literally don't know. So with every day, my children, not so much RJ, he's young, Esme's eight, we're very comfortable talking about death. It just rolls off her tongue. She's like, oh, is that what you want, mommy? I'm clear and I'm concise mm. because my dad's death just caught me unaware. He died of the flu. Mm. Literally, I spoke to him on Wednesday and he was dead by Friday. Wow. And I was like, he drove himself to hospital and then he had organ failure in the waiting room of A&E. He died in front of strangers. And I was like, yeah, we need to fix that. We need to like open up our throat chakra and really talk about what's going on here. But I think at the heart of grief is secrecy, especially in the black community. And things could be a lot smoother and less traumatic if we were more honest in our day-to-day -day life. And so everyone like talks about my books and they're like, oh, you're so honest. And I'm like, my honesty has come at a cost. And it's not for everyone, I'll tell you why. My honesty in our community has made me a pariah in a lot of spaces. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, you see that one? She can't close her mouth, you know? <laughs> you see that one? She will not fall in that. I can't. It's just, it's not how I'm made. Like, I see an injustice. And we're going to have to talk about this right now yeah. and publicly because you lot are doing a matters. Like, I feel like I'm one of, not one of the only ones, but I'll talk about colorism all day long. Mm -hmm. But you see, in the black British community, don't know when I'm going to have that conversation, you know, because it's like, don't upset the upper heads. Don't what are the upper heads doing for me? <laughs> I'm the dark skinned one being underpaid in this situation. So now we, we must talk about it right now. And I feel like us not wanting to have these conversations is something that is like, it's cancerous to our community. So we're going to talk about grief and we're going to talk about money. Mm -hmm. We're definitely going to talk about money because that's another thing in our community. Um, black people don't like to talk about money. How did you do that? Mm -hmm. Where are these funds coming from? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's my one true reason for being. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's made me a pariah in some places, but it allows me to live a life where first and foremost, what I have to say is celebrated. And that's really important for me. I wanna bounce back on the ideas of purpose. Because mm. when you're speaking at the moment, it's almost like you know what you've been sent here to do. You've taken your assignment, <laughs> sis. And I don't like it, you know. <laughs> it's, not, it's not enjoyment. <laughs> Some days I wake up so I'm visibly angry and yeah. my day's like, right, it's one of them days, isn't it? Yeah. Some days I wake up and I'm like, rah, why can't I choose another path? I, like, I fully look up at the sky and I'm like, why? And this isn't to say that God hasn't put, put given me a great cushion in other areas of my life. But in most situations, I'm the first up to bat. I Am Not Your Baby Mother is still the only book about black British motherhood you can go into the British Library and ask for. It's one of one. And so when I find myself in these moments where it's like there is no blueprint 
for what I'm trying to do. There is no one I can call. There is no woman that looks like me who has come down this road. And so the licks I take publicly are painful and shameful. And it's all happening for the world to see. Who would choose that for themselves? Sometimes I look to the heavens and I was like, why couldn't you just be a housewife? Why, why, Lord, why? And then it's like I had to understand and heed that this is just the way it goes. And it's going to be easier if you can provide less friction. And when I started to lean into my purpose, God was like, and in these areas, this is how I'm going to make life nice for you. So that when you go out into that world and they try to bash you up, you've got this safe space to come home to. But that's like, it's not, accepting the task has not been easy. And I understand that there are some people who die not knowing or not wanting to know or understand their purpose. So I do feel blessed in that way. But it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's tough. And we were talking about that this morning because I feel like often you do you shouldn't feel the weight, but you do, especially when you want to talk on race. Um, I was very public around George Floyd on going on the internet and speak because especially when I've been working in the brand space for many many years, and all of a sudden all these brands are you know publicly declaring their alliance for the black community. I said which part? <laughs> I said how? How is it possible? When in, your insides are not matching what your external social media platform is giving me, unfortunately. So why don't we all, my mum always says this, there's rice at home, yeah? So why don't we start with inside first? Let's look at your board of directors. Let's start there first before we now go online and be uh, claiming our alliance. Why don't we look internally and make sure that our internal infrastructure is matching that of our social media platform? And I was very vocal about it. <laughs> and again, like people were messaging me about like, oh my God, Irene, don't you think <laughs> even my agent to a certain degree was like, you need to cool down because you know, again, our brand's gonna look at you as oh, she's too volatile. We can't risk it with her. Maybe we can't support this movement. But it actually worked in my favor because actually it made a lot of brands that I work with have to relook at their internal business structure. And I could, I could say, well, actually, here's this person that specializes in diversity and inclusion. Maybe you should speak to them. And here's this person that, this influencer that you never thought about working with before. She might not have a million followers, but she has substance. Why don't you work with her? And what it did do is it gave us a voice. And yes, they don't respect us, and they probably never will. But at the same time, they have to listen. And I think that's the difference now, and that's the change. And it makes me really fucking happy. I can't lie, sis. <laughs> it makes me really happy. I want to talk to you a little bit about mum life because you just you spoke about your kids a yeah. few times. Mum life versus work life. <laughs> How do you achieve a good balance? I don't because mm. mum life is the one that chose me. Mm. I had a very uh, a very big motherhood role early on in my life, not one that I would have wanted. So when I got older and I busted face, I was like, I'm never having kids because <laughs> I done know the done. Like I, I've been up with the screaming newborn. I've changed the nappies. I've done the school run. I'm not going back to this. And then Esme came along <laughs> and was again, God was like, we got other plans. And I respect what motherhood has helped me do, which is anchor myself and be really clear about my purpose and also know that there are other external versions of love waiting for me when I get home so I'm not dependent on the dopamine of social media or strangers. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't care if you don't rate me. Esme does. Mm -hmm. On we go. <laughs> and they've given me this weird strength. Like, me and my friends always say, when I'm feeling scared about something, I just go, Candice is scared, but Esme and RJ's mum is not. Mm -hmm. Like, they, 
leaning on them for those resources has been absolutely mind-blowing. Um, but I understood that my motherhood is very different to a lot of people's because in my relationship, I see my kids the least. I've also been able to build the kind of lifestyle where I have a housekeeper, I have child, I couldn't live my life without those things in place. And so my kids are just used to seeing me come and go and I love them dearly. But that also means that, and I saw this a lot in the black community, that I'm not resentful of my children mm. because I don't think they've robbed me of my dreams or my ambition. Mm. And I think a lot of the time in the black community, when we see friction between mother and child, number one, there is the realization, and a lot of people don't want to have this conversation. I said it the other day, many black women's wombs were burdened with children they didn't want, mm. yeah? But they couldn't access certain reproductive health services or the shame of their external family made them keep that child. And so what develops is parenting through friction. This, uh, you know, I've had you, but I didn't really want to have you. And now you're just, you're cramping my style. And I people see the way I deal with my kids and they're like, Ra, you just look so happy. I'm like, I wanted them. I wanted those children. There was a time I was pregnant where I didn't want that child and I didn't have it. And that's the difference. I could, I can, I could see the bitterness I would have had for the child I fell pregnant with mm. early in my 20s. And I can see the difference I, and the respect and love I have for the kids now. And so that makes my mum life very full. Like I want to be all in with them and I want to give them the love. Because I'm like, I made the decision to do this and I'm going to stand by that. But I think we need to have deep empathy for the black women that came before us and didn't have those many choices. And that's hard because I too am a product of that bitterness. So it's like, it's hard to have empathy for someone or something that is meant to have this all-consuming, purposeful love for you. But that's just not how it is. I think all we can do is make choices to be or to not be those kinds of mums. And so that's where work life comes in. And I enjoy the fact that my children get to see me work specifically my daughter Esme who doesn't want kids and she wants to dress like what's that woman's name Frank Leibowitz or you know the one that wears the blazer <laughs> I, I, imagine having access to my wardrobe yeah and only wanting to wear denim and a black blazer that's Esme she's like this is all nonsense just give me the same outfits <laughs> um and her seems she's like mom I love the fact that you can you can go to work and in my relationship again like I said when I quit my job all the finances were on body. And there came a time during the pandemic where I was out earning him. And we're very public about that conversation because I see a lot of young girls on social media, nah, my man needs to get me a bus down and he needs to be on six figures. And I'm like, sweetie, if you want a respectful relationship that's going to be able to grow with you, sometimes you're going to have to be the man. Sometimes, like, it's an energy exchange. I couldn't come, I couldn't sit. He done the school run. He got them ready. Now, if I was chasing the man with the bus down, and I've chased a few of them, them men ain't letting you come to do this because your role yeah. is to be at home with the children. And so Bode helps me have that balance. He's like, I understand that this is what set your soul on fire. Also, as a man, he's like, respectfully, I've looked at the numbers and what am I going to work for? <laughs> what am I going He's like, respectfully, he's like, Rum, I'm really just coming with the bread, the 50p for the bread in it. And he's like, actually, if I support you going out there, this family can make way more. Yeah. And I understand that there are some men's, their masculinity can't see past that. The ego that. won't allow. They're yeah. like, you want me to quit my job? <laughs> like, my, my job is the be all and the end all. It's like, nah, babe, let's run the numbers. Mm. Is your job a help or a hindrance? Mm. 
And would you be more helpful to us building this community and this family unit if you said, right, I'm going to come and support the family? The minute, cause, and again, Bode quit in the middle of the pandemic. He put in his notice. They didn't even make him work it. He w- they were like, oh, what are you going to do? He's like, can you see what my wife is doing? I'm getting on that boat. And this business has exploded because of that. And again, like I said, I could sit here all day and be like, this is how I do it. It's just luck and privilege. Mm-hmm. I've had the luck and the privilege of finding a man who isn't so caught up in that toxic masculinity that he can stand aside and be like, well, she actually has this. Mm-hmm. And all I can do is just get on board and support. Try. I'm praying for my body. <laughs> I'm praying that God will deliver me my body. <laughs> i got some quick fire questions just to round up. Favorite city in the world? New York. Hey. <laughs> Favorite food? Seafood is my ministry of any kind. Oysters, big shrimp, all of that. All of that. <laughs> um, what do you do to relax in your spare time? Oh, right. I meditate, you know. I would be in HMP if I didn't meditate. So I <laughs> <laughs> Favorite hobby? Peloton right now. Really? <laughs> Chai, I'm going to I'm going to jump on that Peloton wave. Um when do you most feel comfortable in your own skin? At home. That's my safe space. Mm. Yeah. And what are some of your favourite spots in London? Oh, my favourite spots in London. Lord God. Give me one. Um, Old Bond Street. <laughs> <laughs> Old money. <laughs> <laughs> we see you, sis. <laughs> and what's next? Just to round up, sis, oh. what's next? Give us the gist. We've got the YA novel coming out. Like I said, God will do it. He always mm. does. And I think people have seen on social media, I'm under no illusion that I think I've reached a glass ceiling in this Mm. city. So next is trying to find out how I can get more space to grow. Mm -hmm. Growth in London is very clipped for black women Mm. and women that look like me. They're like, there, there, love. You've had your one bag now. Keep, (laughs) keep, pim, pim, pim. And that's not going to satisfy me. Mm. And so next is working out how I can answer that call of my heart and do it with my family. Global monies. <laughs> we love to see it. International <laughs> currency receiver. We love to see it. We love to see it. So guys, on that note, I kind of want to put it out to the floor. Like I always say with these things, I don't want to come here and talk too much. So questions. Let's do it. If you're comfortable to come on the stage. So thank you for the talk. It was really inspiring, um, both of you. Um, I guess the bit that I would like to really hear about is um, we know that publishing is very white and really getting your stripes as a black woman. And when you talked about having um, having to have a white manager, it kind of sunk my heart a little bit in some ways. Um, but also recognising that white women, other white women are allies to us. So could you tell us a bit more about your manager? Because in some senses, that's probably also what's helped. So hearing a bit more about kind of the allyship and the importance of that and real allyship and people that meaningfully mean that because there's lots of white women in this room that you need to support your black women as well. What a question, what a question. That's a brilliant question. Um, Francesca's now one of my best friends. We just went to New York together. And what Francesca had to learn the hard way is that as a black woman, I know best. So she will... Oh, sorry. Do you know that? Well, well, well. (laughs) I was going to correct my word. (laughs) She would come to me with these like, oh, this brand wants to work with you. And I'd be like, nope. She'd be like, but they're paying. I'd be like, nope. She's like, what? I was like, you don't know the sound on the ground in my community. You don't know what they're not doing for us behind the scenes. You don't. 
I know. And you need to learn to trust that. And there were a few bumps in the road, I'm not going to lie. And now I don't even need to say N-O, just N. She's like, girl, I heard you. <laughs> um, and obviously BLM taught her a lot as well. And what, what uh, we, we need to give uh, these white female allies space to do is um, to be there for us. And it can get uncomfortable on both ends, you know? Because I'm like, no, I want to speak up for myself. Like, it's all right. And I remember the time there was a bit of a story going around in the press and watching Francesca call, when I say the baddest of bad men in the media industry, like some Princess Die type thing, I was like, oh, this is, this is, oh. Because the reality is uh, the idea of black Britain and black our black community, we've not even been here long enough to have them kind of resources or connections. Mm. And so now I'm in reparations mode. Mm -hmm. And what, what Francesca supports me in is getting my dues, getting my reparations from those communities and those people where for so long we've been underpaid and, mm -hmm. and you know people have been mocking us or not giving us our worth. She's like, again, she's the ultimate coin collector because mm -hmm. she's like, they're not even going to tell you the truth. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go in. You're going to be quiet. You're going to smile. I'm going to chat the thing. They're going to email me. We're going to take their money down. I'm like, girl. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord, <laughs> praise be. I'm like, yes, sis, yes, sis. Because I'm like, I can't do this by myself. And this is the thing, as a true white ally, you're going to have to push through that discomfort. And it doesn't even have to be in like an agent setting. You, you know when you're being paid more than your black counterpart. You know. And it's, oh, I'm telling you, your black counterpart will be relieved for you to bring that conversation up first in private and for you to say, how can I support you in that? How can I support you in getting what you're worth and going where you're going? Like the black squares, all of that is done now. Like really put your, your, put your, put your mouth up, which is your money in this situation and be like, how can I stand 10 toes down with you in this moment? And I hear what you're saying about like, my heart breaks all the time because I'm not going to lie to you. Some of my biggest barriers to this industry have been black people. I'm not going to front. Some of my most painful moments have been because of what black people have done or won't do for me. And that's a really hard thing to sit with. But guess what? That also inspires me to create communities and situations where we don't have to do that to each other anymore. Because I'm also in a place of empathy. We've always been told there's just one seat. Mm. We've always been told like at this, this table seats 20 and listen, for someone that looks like it's just the one. Mm. So when that one person gets that seat and their moment and they've got a family to feed, their defenses go up. Mm. And anyone that looks like them is a challenge to them feeding theirs. Mm. I get it. But the reality is if we, we need to get more comfortable and loving with each other mm. and build communities where it's like all 20 of these seats are for us, bro. And if we feel like giving one up to a white ally, that can be our choice. But for so long, we've been told to stay outside or wait in line. I always say it. Britain has this thing. They love their one chosen blackie, you know. In every industry in the UK, there's one chosen blackie. And the attitude is, oh, you want to do that? You have to wait for them to die. And I mean that quite literally. You want to be a comedian? Nanny Henry ain't dead yet. <laughs> wait your turn, do you know what I mean? And I feel like if we all got together and we're just like, come, let's build this industry over there where we don't have to take turns because there's enough space for all of us, we could really do that. The reality is, though, and a lot of people don't need to hear this, we need the white people's money to get it done because our money is not long and strong enough yet to support these ideas, and that's where that allyship can come in. Try Finish them. <laughs> come on up, sis. Um, so my question, that talk was amazing. Um, my question is a bit of a downer, but it's about um, death and, gr and grief. 
I feel like I'm exactly like you. Like I love to speak about grief and death because I think it gives other people the opportunity for them to speak about theirs. But do you ever feel like you're in a position where you speak too much about it or you make those conversations? How do you open those conversations up when you feel like maybe the the door's quite shut? That's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, the doors are up. And do you know what? It's really interesting. It's interesting to see my husband through... I see him as a child. He's so untouched. No one he loves closely has died yet. Mm. And I literally brace myself every day because I'm like, your parents are getting older and when this storm tumbles in, Lord, I'm like, cover us. Because he's just, do you know what? And I love it. He's blissfully unaware. Mm. He's just there living his life not knowing the call can come, you know? Mm. And so I'm ready. I'm prepared for that. And he is anti-death. He don't want to hear it. Listen, I subscribe to death YouTube channels. I've got some good ones for you, girl. I'm part of chat rooms and communities where speaking about these things ain't a problem because the reality is there's education in death too. Do you know where your estate's going? Do you know how to split it up? Have you sorted your will out? No one, again, only old money have those conversations because they think they're the only ones that have something to protect. No, we have things to protect. And in the essence of discussing death, we can get education about how to protect those resources. So I don't necessarily force the conversation on people. The reality is um, I'm so open with it that I attract and detract what's not for me so my friends have all been touched by death so it's a really it's really easy to be like i'm just missing my dad today you know and i can just cry 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 and no one's holding me or you know saying oh don't talk about that and i think you need to just find people who are on that wavelength about discussing it and of course i don't bring it up in every situation but there's so much to be like there's also you know i love a business there's always there's so much money in death <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Honestly, so, and I'm just like, all of you lot shook the death. You know that's the one paycheck you know you're going to get, you know? <laughs> Honestly, them coffins have to keep being knocked up. So I just wish, especially in the black community, because I understand, uh, you know, there's this line between death and spirituality. So a lot of the time, the excuse is, I don't want to, we don't want to bring that spirit into this house. We don't want to, the spirit's coming, baby. The spirit's coming. So prepare yourself and prepare your kids. So like I said, you may just have to like go online and find tribes where you can openly have that conversation. I love what you said about assets though, because I think it's only when you start to acquire assets, you start to think about what is going to happen with that asset. I literally had to fill in a form the other day and he was like, who's your next, who do you want, if anything happens to you, I had to do a will, because now you've you got assets now, innit? So you've got to be having those, I always say you've got to put on your big boy pants now and start having this conversation. And I was like, okay, my nephew gets everything right now. But it is actually literally like having, I'm, I'm having those current conversations even with my mum, like when you, what do you want? So like, and I know, because my mum Nigerian is, don't talk, I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I don't, I don't, that's not, that is not, you know them ones with the, with the fists. <laughs> But you do, you do have to have those conversations. What? Do you know what? If your mum doesn't tell you there's going to be beef, you know, yeah. I'll keep it straight. straight. Especially when you have siblings. So you need to ah. have those clear-cut conversations. But also for tax purposes, yes. you don't want to be paying more money than you have to. There are loopholes. <laughs> so you need to find a hole and you need to dive on the line. <laughs> but that's a whole nother podcast. Any more questions before we close it up, guys? Yeah, of course. Last one. Thank you both so much. It was so inspirational. Um, one question I wanted to ask really was, you know, you both are very kind of vocal and outspoken on social media. And I wanted to hear more about some techniques you both use to kind of remain resilient. Because, you know, I know what you're saying was like blocking and reporting, but I think it is so difficult to, you know, 
listen to your, I guess, inner voice and have that. So I was, it'd be great to hear from you both about, you know, what techniques you find really helpful to kind of, yeah, sort of support yourself and be kind to yourself amongst all that noise. Thank you. Sue, you want to go first? I think one of the biggest game changers for me was learning to face my front. <laughs> and That's a real Caribbean saying. An African one. Yeah, face my front. <laughs> Coming up in the game early, I was too follow fashion. I was too interested in what everyone else was doing. I was very, um, what's that word? Um, always comparing. Oh, why have they got that job and I didn't? The minute I was able to just look into my own purpose and, and look forward, that's when the resilience came in. Because now what A, B or C does, it just doesn't seem to, I can see it, but it's like I've got some kind of invisible force field around me where these things just don't, you know, penetrate as much and then what I found that energy does it allows you to just see the snakes clear bright as day because so much of this resilience is not necessary when your team is good when your team is golden when that that thought is tight and I don't just it doesn't need to be agent or manager it could just be really good good friends who know that a storm's brewing or know that people are chatting certain things but you see my bestie she's a good plant you know because more time people she doesn't like to display our friendship because she's like I am the intel I go into these rooms and someone's gonna run their mouth about you and it's my job to bring back that helps my resilience because then I know who I should and shouldn't be linking with. And it's something, unfortunately, like most things, good resilience can only be built over time and through the fire. I didn't understand or need resilience when I was a fresh baby in the game thinking, oh, all these air kisses mean something. After, I call it the last supper because you know the girl that did end up in the papers for the trolling? The day before that became a national news story, she held a dinner for us. Every single person she had slated, we call it, we now call it the Last Supper. We were all there doing, not knowing the next day the sun were gonna be like, hey, Judas is up in the camp. So that's when the resilience, I was like, right. And every time I go through that furnace, I'm so thankful. Although I've had a discussion with God, I said, I'm done with that publicly. And he said, amen. I'm like, you can roast me in private, but I don't want the public dragging anymore. Um, resilience for me, it's just something that you've got to earn and learn how to modify it as time goes on. Because now my resilience is needed in another area. How do I go into spaces and not feel small? How do I go into spaces and not have imposter syndrome because these climbs are getting higher and higher and it's not necessarily about being around influencers now. I'm going into boardrooms with billionaires and they're talking VC this and NFT that and I'm just like, rah, some latent didn't teach me that, you know. So now I'm just bright eyed and bushy tailed like, yes, blink twice and just pretend and smile and you will build resilience as time goes on. I think for me, just to add on to what Candice said is that also being your authentic self I don't post about anything that's not my real life. <laughs> and unfortunately, I know that they always say like sometimes social media is ho however you want perceive people to perceive you, you can forge it. But I always just try to stay authentic. I've always been my authentic self. I speak about things that concern me. I promote things that I'm, I'm excited about. And I've just always tried to keep it 100. And again, leading into what Candice, I think I've got a good support network. Like you will see me doing dinners for X, Y, and Z, but you always will always see me with my friends. Um, I think I, I was, I was, me and Candice were talking earlier and it was so, I was in a weird uh, panel and someone on a panel was saying that they don't have any friends and they like it that way. And actually it made me really sad because I felt like, how do you not have any friends? Like, like your f my friends are like my family and I, I don't know if this is a Brixton thing or growing up on the road is like, 
my friends became my family because my mum was always working. So it was my friends that taught me about makeup. It was my friends that taught me about period. All, like, it was my friends that went with me to buy my first pair of heels. It w it w so for me, friendships have always been so important to me and I've built my network on friendships. And it makes me money now, which is really great. And I get to work with really fun artists and really fun, um, really fun influencers. But at the end of the day, it still boils down to what's important to me and how do I align myself in a real way. And I think if you can always stay grounded and always make sure that you're authentic to yourself, I don't really see how you can fault it because your true authentic self is always going to shine through. No matter what you're putting out there, the real you, somehow, some way, it will be exposed. So it's better that you just keep it 100 from the beginning, keep your real friends around you, grow with your friends. Like The same people that I was folding T-shirts with on the shop floor at Selfridges is now the editor of this magazine or like now managing this artist. So it's just constantly keeping those networks, constantly keeping those relationships and keeping real friends. Right? And don't you find that those friends, what I love about them, and I know your friends will do the same, is they will pull you up in private and support you in public. Yeah, facts. And that's all I need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do not... Pull me up in private. I've got the friends that were like, you know what, girl, I, I, I don't think that was the right time. <laughs> but you know, when we go out there, I got you. Yeah. And, that, and that's what yeah. I need. Because the reality is the people, the business relationships, they're still about money. Mm. And the minute you ain't making their money, the friendship done. It's finished. So we need to, re we, we need to remain aligned with those we were folding the T-shirts with. Because mm -hmm. come hell or high water, those are still the people that are going to have our back. Cheese. Guys, oh. squeeze in one more. Come on, sis. Come, 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 come. Before we gotta close it up. I just found it really interesting what you were saying about imposter syndrome. And I just wanted to kind of know your thoughts on, yeah, why women, in particular black women, feel like we get imposter syndrome when put into these spaces. And yeah, how you overcome that and how you get to a place where you're like, actually, no, I deserve to be here. Uh, I think it's really simple. You can't be what you can't see. And again, so many of us are the first up, the up to bat. We're the front runners. And so you're stepping into a space where you, you, don't, you can't even see what you can achieve because there's no pattern. So your mind is skewed. You're like, I know the value I bring. I know the skills I have. But is this real? Because I feel like I'd, I've never seen someone like me make it. And the, the way I deal with it is that it's just come down to the time I was born. And I was saying to Irene over in the corner, I said, I'm in reparations mode. I don't necessarily, and I, I'm be, I'm, I'll be very honest with you, this is not the season of working hard for me. Them days are gone. <laughs> if you're going to pay me 100% of the fee for 20% of the work, it's about time. Because guess what? 10 years ago, it was flip mode, you know? And so now my imposter syndrome is very like, no, nah, you've earned this. You've earned this moment. You've earned this relaxation mode. So it's just about going into a situation, understanding that, Actually, I shouldn't have imposter syndrome because I am, you know, when they say, um, what's that word they use for it when they talk about your ancestors? You're going to be the ancestor. So how are you going to perform in this moment so that when the next two black girls come along, there is a pattern for them to follow? Because if you let your imposter syndrome get you, there will never be a pattern because you'll leave. And so every next black woman will be the first in the door spinning like, how do I do this? How it's time for you to step up and be that good ancestor. And I'm like, you know what, God, if you've seen fit enough for me to be in the room, the rest is on you. And I think so much of it is us stepping outside of our ego and seeing ourselves less of like me, Candice, Shanice, Emma, and just the light. 
You are actually now just a guiding light for girls that have been living in darkness for so, so long. You don't actually get to let your imposter syndrome eat you up. I'm not saying you can't listen to it or understand it, but you can't let it finish you because then we're going to have no plan and no pattern. Yeah, facts. I'm just going to reiterate, like, (laughs) it's tough. We we say all of this because it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. And you do often look around and, like you said, there is still that one seat that we always own and it is literally made to feel like there's only one of us. But again, like I always say that it takes a few of us to just unlock the door. We might not bust it all the way open. Just leave it a little creak Just leave it a bit ajar. (laughs) And it's for the next generation to come through and fuck it up. And that's how I always say, like... Maybe it's my job just to get to the door and push down the handle. And maybe it's the next person's door job to open the door a crack. And then it's the next person's job to kick it open. Yeah. But everybody has their position to play. And unfortunately, it is the first person that always feels the brunt of it because it's new and you feel lost. And you're, I always say that like SpongeBob meme where you're just <laughs> spinning, you know? But until we start to open those doors and bust it open, like Candy said, we're always, we're never gonna have the tools, and that's the whole point of this panel, is that c- equip with the tools. So now you can be like, wow, I learned this. You're gonna go and tell your friend, or you're gonna go and eat. Oh, God, I'm I went to this talk today, you know. Cause this is what I learned today, you know. <laughs> but you're passing on the knowledge and the tools, and that's what that's what this is about. So yeah, on that note, guys, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Candy, Spanner Pals. Thank you to Soho House. Thank you. And I also just want to finish on a final note is, is the, is the impo- importance of, of network. I did my first TTYA talks at Soho House in 2014. Wow. Yeah, we're in 2021. So they've been a long-term ally of mine. Um, 22. 22, sorry. <laughs> but it's been a long time, you know? And I think from starting at in the small library at Shoreditch House to like it growing, I've opened so many houses all around the world and they've always supported me. They've always supported my, my space to be able to have the confidence to say whatever I feel, no matter what, you know? So I'd like to thank Sam and I'd like to thank the Soho House family. Thank you so much. Um, and I'd also like to thank you guys. It's not easy coming here early in the morning. So I appreciate you. This is TTYA Talks. I'm Irene TTYA and I'd like to thank you, Candice. I appreciate you with my whole heart. I've got my books in my bag for you to sign. <laughs> thank you guys. I appreciate you. Love you all. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word. Rate, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. For any questions, please also feel free to send me a signal on Instagram or Twitter on the handles at IreneTTYA or at TTYA Talks.